This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, uh, before we get started, uh, Shay, we have an important announcement to make. So can you cue that drummer sitting over there in the corner? There we go. Okay. Well, as of last weekend, the Talk of Fame Network has a new home. We're no longer at talkoffamenetwork.com, though you can find us there if you type in that on your computer. But we've moved to The Maven, where you can reach us at themaven.net slash talkoffame. That's themaven.net talkoffame. And, Ron, you're the guy who brokered this deal. It's a pretty good one, don't you think? I do. I do uh, think it's a good deal. Uh, Maven's a collection of sites uh, not only centering on sports, but all aspects of life, culture, politics, arts, all that. Uh, combined, they reach over 100 million uh, uh, viewers, clickers, whatever you would call them. And I think that should expose uh, what we do here at Talk of Fame uh, Network to a much wider audience. And, you know, like a farmer in the vineyard, we're trying to grow the product. So uh, I think it's a, <laughs> kind of a a hundred, a hundred, a hundred million, roughly what our radio audience is, right? Something like that. Exactly. Exactly right. Something like that. All right. Gooseman, you're Dr. Data, of course. So there's a lot of data, knowledge, as Ron said, tech help, and very, very smart and prolific Writers associated with this site. It's a good one. Yeah, and good friends, too. Legends. Tracy Ringlesby, Krista Frain, Mark Blotch, and Frank Coney, Russell Baxter. We're in with the heavyweights. Yeah, it's, it's a good group. Uh, anyway, we couldn't be happier. And, and that goes double for this show, as a matter of fact, which is always, always going somewhere. And today, it's to the Grey Cup championship coach and College Hall of Fame inductee. That would be Dave Dickinson. Also, NFL Network historian Elliot Harrison's with us, as well as former referee Ed Hockley, who is getting his likeness inducted into, get this, the Bobblehead Hall of Fame. To be honest with you guys, I didn't know there was one. Ron? How soon before they call us? Well, my guess is they've already called the Goose Man, but uh, I've got an idea. They could put the three of us all in one, and we could have a goose head for the goose, of course, judge's robe for the judge, and a Portuguese man of war for myself. And you could just call us like, you know, the production line, like the great Sid Abel and Gordy Howe and Ted Lindsay. In our case, we'd be the, call us the talk line. Maybe we get 100 million people to buy those things. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be great. Anyway, we've got a lot to get to today, and we will, beginning now. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there was another big announcement last week, and while Rick and I celebrated it, Ron, my guess is you may have missed it. You ever heard of the magnificent Mrs. Maisel? <laughs> no, I have not, but I have heard of The Magnificent Seven with my main man, Yul Brenner, as a Cajun gunslinger, and Steve McQueen as Tanner. It was great. Charlie Bronson in that movie, too. Great. <laughs> You're not going to see that on TV right now. But anyway, year two of Mrs. Maisel's back, and it's already streaming on Amazon. And Goose, I know because you told me that you binge-watched the first three episodes in, what was it, like the first day it was available? Yes, sir. You know, there, there have been shows that I've binged all eight or nine episodes in one day. I've seen about five of Mrs. Maisel now. 
Or we spent two weeks one spring binging the entire Sopranos series. I wish TV created those binge opportunities about 20 years ago. Who is Mrs. Basil? Fill me in. <laughs> oh, we will. What we am I missing? Will. Watch the Emmys. State your case, Mrs. Basil. <laughs> when are you going to binge listen to the Talk of Fame Network, Goose? <laughs> So, Ron, all those questions, you know what? You don't need to watch it. You can just contact Rick or me for the Cliff Notes version, okay? Sure, because that's how I got through through college, man, with the help of my best friend, Cliff (laughs) Notes. Well, there will not be spoiler alerts here, I promise. And one more guarantee, we will not reveal our Hall of Fame finalist picks either, Ron. You're on your own there, but I would like to hit that subject again. Right now, because we have basically one week to fill out our ballots, I think they're supposed to be returned by next Wednesday. And because we have the NFL Network's Elliot Harrison up next to talk to us about this class of semifinalists. So um, let's go to uh, the subject at hand. I mean, now, uh, I mean, a week ago, we dissected the defensive backs. I think the week before that, we went through the offensive linemen. So now uh, what's left is the linebackers because. The offensive linemen are four. The defensive backs are four. There's no one that's as large as that except except this group, and that's the linebackers. There are four of them, just as there are, as I said, four offensive linemen. But there's a difference here, guys. Where all four of those offensive linemen have been finalists, and all four have been top ten finalists. In fact, they were a year ago. None of these linebackers have been in that room, and I mean period. Not Sam Mills, not Carl Mecklenburg, not Clay Matthews, and certainly not Zach Thomas, who's making his first appearance as a semifinal. So, uh, gentlemen, which of these four has the best chance of surviving the cut to 15? And, Goose, let's start with you. Yeah, I think Zach Thomas has the best chance for survival because he's the latest in this committee. Has leaned heavily in recent years toward the newer, younger candidates. So worthy and deserving candidates like Mecklenburg and Matthews have annually slipped through the cracks. You know, candidates have a 25-year window of eligibility, but the reality is, if you don't make the finals in your first five years of eligibility, you become fast-tracked to the senior committee. This is Mecklenburg's last shot. I would hope he gets into the room. His career is deserving of discussion and debate. Unfortunately, we saw how the committee discarded the candidacies of Joe, Joe Jacoby and Everson Walls in their final years of eligibility. How about yeah, it, Ron? Yeah, I agree with Goose. I mean, I think Mecklenburg uh, is the most deserving, I think, although I think all four of them are deserving of getting their at least one shot in the room. Um, he's, he's, yeah, what does Goose say all the time? Uh, latest is the greatest in the yeah. eyes of a lot of these people, and I'm afraid that may be the case. Um, but I would really like to see Carl Mecklenburg. Uh, the thing I always remember about him is Art Shell will tell me when I asked him about him and Gratishar, and he said, it depends on where you like your linebackers. If you want him on the top of the pile, take Gratishar. If you want him on the bottom, take Mecklenburg. I like wow. them on the bottom. Hey, Gooseman, quick question. Um, if Mrs. Maisel were included in this group, she'd be the first one, right? <laughs> she'd be on my ballot. She'd, al- she'd already be in. She'd is already she, be in. Is she, is she married to Vinegar Bend Maisel? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Ron's asking, Mrs. who's Mrs. Maisel, just absolutely staggers me. Ron, get a clue. I'm going to start watching some TV. Which, I know. Get a life. <laughs> yeah. hey, you know, what's interesting here, guys, is, is that of that group, only one, and Gucci mentioned Zach Thomas, he's an all-decade choice. Yet he's the guy who's making his first appearance as the semifinals, first as he's semifinals. So 
how much does not being an all-decade player hurt these guys, or, or, or really does it? I mean, of this list of 25, and okay, let's say 22, since coaches uh, aren't going to be included among the players we're talking about, more than half, 15 as a matter of fact, are all-decade choices. So, Ron, how much of an advantage is that going forward? Well, I think historically it, it, it was always a, a pretty good advantage because that's uh, if you did distinguish yourself, you know, through the spread of 10 years. I mean, that's a Hall of Fame career for most guys. But I, mm-hmm. I do think that of late, uh, the, the mood in the room has changed a little bit with some of the younger voters and where I feel, you know, when it's to the advantage of a candidate they like, they cite it. And if it's not, then they say, well, it's not that important. <laughs> so uh, it's an odd but uh, growingly true circumstance. Of the 265 players in Strine and Ken, 74% of them were all decade selections. Like it or not, an all-decade candidate has the edge over a non-all-decade candidate in this process. Okay. Um, One last thing here, Goose. Um, You know, this is Mecklenburg's last shot, as Ron mentioned. It's his 20th and last year of eligibility as a modern era candidate. And if he doesn't reach the hall here, Ron, I'll direct this to you. Um, Tell the listeners what happens, because it's not good. Uh, It is not. He's left into the great abyss. That's the senior pool, the great abyss, which is deeper than Lake Bacal, which is the deepest lake in the world at 3,893 feet below sea level. As Dante's, uh, (laughs) in the Divine Comedy, Dante had that sign up there. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here when you go to hell. Where'd you come up with that? I do my research for the show. I don't just walk in the studio, put on spare headphones, eat a couple Twizzlers, close, and say, let's close go. The, close that World Book Encyclopedia and start queuing up Mrs. Maisel. Hey, Goose, listen, one last thing. You know as well as anyone, because you presented a candidate a year ago who was much like this, Everson Walls. He was precisely in this position. But that last gas plea, you know, it doesn't really mean voters necessarily respond to someone who's Hall of Fame worthy, does it? No, the older a player is, the less chance some of these voters saw him play. And there's a natural tendency to vote for players you've seen rather than the players you haven't seen. Yeah. Well, I know someone our Rick Awesome believes is Hall of Fame worthy. And he was the subject of a State Your Case piece Rick posted on our website, the Maven slash, the Maven.net slash talk of fame this week. Just go to talkofanymore.com. They'll make it easier. So, Goose, the floor is yours. State your case. Few in NFL history knew defense like Richie Pettibone. Knew how to play it. Knew how to coach it. Pettibone played safety in the NFL for 14 seasons and then spent 15 more seasons coaching it. He excelled in both capacities, winning NFL championships on the field and on the sideline. And that's the sticky part of Pettibone's Hall of Fame candidacy. The Hall mandates that a candidate either be considered as a player or as a coach, or as a contributor, with no overlap. There isn't supposed to be any consideration of a candidate's, quote, body of work, just the strongest facet of his resume. Dick LeBeau intercepted 62 career passes and was enshrined in Ken as a cornerback, supposedly with no regard for the fact he invented the zone blitz, coordinated six top-ranked defenses, and won two Lombardi trophies as an assistant coach. John Madden was an excellent coach, winning 74% of his games in the Super Bowl, but left as large a footprint on the game after he left the field. Yet the voters were supposed to ignore his impact on the culture of football as both a TV analyst and the namesake of the Madden video game. Pettibone, likewise, is a body-of-work candidate. He won an NFL title on the field with the Bears in 1963, then helped the Rams win an NFC West title off the field in 1969, and the Redskins win an NFC title in 1972. He intercepted 48 career passes and recovered another 13 fumbles. He intercepted a career-high eight passes in Chicago's championship season 1963, and his 38 interceptions with the Bears ranked second in franchise history. 
He began his second NFL career in 78 with the Redskins under Jack Pardee's secondary coach. When Hall of Famer Joe Gibbs became the head coach in 1981, Pettibone was promoted to defensive coordinator. He ran the offense, Pettibone the defense, and a team that won three Super Bowls over the next 11 seasons. His units led the NFL in scoring defense in 1981, in run defense in 1983, and pass defense in 1985. Three of his defenses finished in the NFL's top five, and two more finished in the top ten. Richie Pettibone was among the best at what he did as a player, and among the best at what he did as a coach, that gives him a body of work worthy of Hall of Fame discussion. So, Goose, why didn't he get any love in his time, do you think? And is it too late now? Oh, Ron, you've seen the senior pool. We can ask that about Deep. 15 dozen people. What what happened? I think the, the process has failed a lot of deserving candidates. There's so many players that deserve to be discussed that haven't been. Hey, Goose, quick question. Richie Pettibone or Mrs. Maisel? <laughs> Or Vinegar Ben Maisel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Richie Pettibone. I did. <laughs> anyway, we got to go. Up next, more semifinalists with the NFL Network's Elliot Harrison. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Elliot Harrison's the resident football historian for the NFL Network. And just a hunch... But you probably knew that because you can see him on the network's total access shows and you can find him on the NFL's website providing weekly power rankings. Where does he have us ranked, Ron? Well, I know where he's got me ranked. Numero uno. <laughs> yeah, a long way from where I am. Anyway, his passion is and always has been the history of the game and the Hall of Fame. And he has strong, strong opinions as to who should and should not be in the Hall of Fame, as I've found out when we've sparred on more than one occasion. Fortunately, fortunately, he's agreed to join us today to express those opinions and hopefully, yes, hopefully, Take it easy on me. Elliot, thanks for joining us. No problem. Is uh, Ron wearing one of his uh, normal patented, like, set sweaters that it's, like, kind of avocado colored? <laughs> oh, my God. Comes out swinging. Oh, no, actually, today God. I'm wearing my Nehru jacket. <laughs> okay, okay. I was just curious. I know Rick has a short sleeve button down on. That's his, that's his go-to. Exactly. Yeah. And I got my okay. Brady jersey on. <laughs> okay, cool. on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being excellent, how would you rate the class of 25 semifinalists for the Hall's class of 2019? Ooh, I'll give it a 7. I'll give it a 7. I think it's strong. I, I like, I'll tell you what I like, Rick. I, I like the idea that we have a chance to get more defensive players in the Hall. And there's a couple of guys that I'm thinking of right now. But, but as a whole, I thought they did a pretty good job. I was happy to see some of the coaches' names. Uh, one of the things that you and I have talked about before is that because of the way the Hall designates coaches and that they are uh, you know, crammed in with the players, it's actually pretty tough, even if you were a great head coach, uh, to make the Hall of Fame. So I like the, the idea that there's some head coaches in there that I think are deserving. Uh, we're not, you're not uh, on the Hall's uh, Board of Selectors. Don't ask me why. They didn't ask me. But uh, uh, you should be. But how difficult uh, would it be for you to reduce this list from 25 to 15? 
not that hard. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, to me, there's certain guys on there that have been waiting way too long. I mean, if we just, if y'all just ran down the names, I, I would tell you right now uh, who, who I like and who I, I think probably will have to wait for a while. Now, let's consider a few things. Every one of those 25 guys are great players. Every single one of them. So just because a guy doesn't make the Hall of Fame uh, doesn't mean that he's not a phenomenal player. Like a guy that I think about a lot is Alan Fanica. You know, to me, Alan Fanica is a Hall of Fame player. He's a Hall of Fame player the day that he retired. But unfortunately, you know, while fans and, and, and sometimes other people in the media complain, well, why didn't the guy make it this year or whatever, it's accounting. You know, it's really accounting. And sometimes you have years where you don't have a stronger class as others. And so there are, there are guys like Alan Fanica, who I'm using as an example, who are on the outside looking in. And then you always have that guy that came out of nowhere. And I think Jason Taylor was that a couple oh, of years ago. Get that yeah, right. right. Yep. Well, Elliot, you said there's certain guys that have been waiting too long, so I'm going to jump the gun here and ask you. You said go down the list. I'm going to go down the list, and they're defensive players. Mecklenburg, okay. he's, he's in his 20th and last year of eligibility. Clay Matthews in his 18th year of eligibility. And then uh-huh. Leroy Butler and Steve Atwater, both first-team all-decade players, with only one, Atwater, being a finalist one time, and that was 2016. Where do you stand on four of those guys? I'm going to rank them for you. Uh, I would sure. go Atwater, Atwater one, uh, Butler two. <sighs> Matthews and Mecklenburg, I would probably tie them. Now, that's taking an easy way out. But Matthews has incredible longevity. But what Carl Mecklenburg had was really unique, a very versatile player. He was a Swiss Army knife for that team. They could put him on the nose. They could put him as an edge rusher on the end. They could play him at standard outside linebacker. They could play him at inside linebacker in a 3-4. The guy could do it all, and I think that makes him unique. But I would put Atwater number one because out of all those guys, he played at the highest level for the longest amount of time. Now, Leroy Butler had several first-team all-pros, okay, which is important, and he also did the first Lambeau leap. But uh, Steve Atwater, to me, played at a high level for about 10 years, and what's going to hurt him is the lack of interceptions. But you can't compare 1990s football to now. It's a, it's a different game. What Steve Atwater was asked to do is a lot like what Cam Chancellor was asked to do in Seattle. And that's why Cam Chancellor doesn't have a ton of interceptions either. But do you think yeah. people thought Cam Chancellor was pretty doggone good? Absolutely. Atwater is Chancellor with just more longevity. Yeah, plus Butler was the first 2020 guy as a defensive back. Yeah, yep, 20 sacks. Yep. That's all I had to add to that, Clark. Uh, Well done. Well, at least you answered. I wasn't sure when I asked the question. I go, is he going to respond? I don't know. (laughs) I just didn't identify myself. (laughs) Elliot, for the longest time, I believe Jerry Kramer was the best player not in Canton. Now he has a bust. Mm -hmm. Then I believe Johnny Robinson was the best player in Canton. He's a senior finalist this year. With Kramer and Robinson out of the mix, who, in your opinion, is now the best player not in Canton? Oh, man, that, Rick, that is a great question. Of all the talks I've had with you over a strawberry daiquiri and Cajun food, I don't think you've ever asked me that. Uh, I would side with you that I think Johnny Robinson was the guy. I'm going to go with the contemporary. I'm going to go with Chuck Halley. Uh, I think Chuck Halley has a little mixture of everything. Um, first of all, was he a great player? Did he get the, the accolades? He did. I think he was a six-time first-team All-Pro player. Uh, a big one to me is when the leagues merged, 
did they still get the same acclaim that they did in the 60s when they weren't competing with this many guys? So, like, Johnny Robinson was an AFL All-Star, right? But then when the leagues merged, did he still get that acclaim? He did. Chuck Howley made first-team All-Pro uh, as a member of the NFC. So that tells me he had the respect of all of his peers. He played forever. The guy played linebacker until he was 37 years old. He was an MVP uh, of a Super Bowl despite his team not winning, and I believe he had four takeaways in his two Super Bowl. Uh, appearances. He's got a Super Bowl ring. Uh, he was great in coverage, a good tackler, never did anything to harm his team off the field. He was just a solid, great player in the National Football League. That would be my number one. Just saying. Uh, you know, there's been a rush. Of Sounds like y'all don't agree. No, well, <laughs> you know, we can argue all night. It's pretty quiet. Uh, it's pretty about, quiet. <laughs> about uh, one guy. But, you know, there's been a lot, uh, uh, really a rush of late to enshrine first ballot candidates, which drives me crazy. Uh, there were three last year and potentially three more this year, although I hope not, in Ed Reed, Champ Bailey, and uh, Gonzalez. Uh, is the latest necessarily the greatest? And what's your stance on first ballot candidates? I, I, I kind of missed that for a second. You're saying, so who do I think is the, the latest, greatest first ballot candidate? Yeah, what's your, what's your, well, what's, yeah, just what's your stance on first ballot Should candidate? Should we be rushing And, you know, 40% of the, of the first ballot candidates in history have gone in since the year 2000. Yeah, and that's what I thought you were driving at. It's, um, With a truck, I was driving at it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's, well, the reason I say that is because there's several different ways to look at first ballot. Uh, one is, okay, was the guy obviously one of the top, say, 50 players in the history of pro football? In my opinion, Ed Reed is that. Uh, okay, another way to look at first ballot is, are we a little too giving with the, the, the first ballot. In other words, we have announcers now every week whenever Antonio Gates catches a touchdown pass, ah, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Right. Well, if you don't really know the process, it's going to drive the people that do crazy. And the last way to look at first ballot is, does it make a difference? Like, who cares? I guarantee you, if Drew Pearson gets in the Hall of Fame right now, I don't think he's going to care whether or not he was first ballot or not. If Joe Jacoby were to make the Hall of Fame, I don't think he's going to care. So that, there's different ways to look at it. Yeah, I, Elliot, Elliot, before you go any further, I'll tell you where it, where it matters. I'm glad you said that because here's where it matters. It throws the cue all out of whack, and you end up with guys in the senior pool who should have gotten in the Hall, but they got jumped by the Jason Taylor, for example, who no more is a yeah. first ballot Hall of Famer than Clark Judge. No wait a minute. No disrespect to Clark, of course. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, no, and it, yeah, no, and I'm going to go to a point that, that Rick makes all the time, which is, hey, were you first team all decade? So Leroy Butler was. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to bang the Cowboys drum too much here. But, look, you got Drew Pearson and Cliff Harris hanging out from the 70s all-decade team. And uh, it's not like we're talking about the Tampa Bay Bucks all 70s. Okay, we're talking about a team that, that played in five Super Bowls. So these are, these are the kind of guys, I think, that you're talking about that, right. you know, they get pushed down the line because of this. And, by the way, on Jason Taylor, I don't mean to bag on Jason Taylor. He's a great player. But I don't think you could say Jason Taylor was unequivocally better than Zach Thomas. And Jason Taylor made it on the first ballot. Zach Thomas hasn't had a chance. Right. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, you think, when you say, on. well, would you say Jason Taylor, do you then think Deacon Jones? Because if you don't, don't put him in the first ballot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I don't think Deacon Jones. I think, uh, again, a unique player, but no, not a Deacon Jones. Now, I will say, guys, I do think of Ed Reed in Deacon Jones terms. I do. Yes, yeah. agreed. 
Agreed, but not the hey. other two. Hey, Elliot, we no, got about I, a minute left here. Uh, we got about a minute left yeah, here. Okay. I got a quick question for you. Do, do you have a yeah. sleeper in this class? I mean, is there a candidate in there who isn't getting much attention you think is going to wind up in Canton next August? I have two, uh, Darren Woodson and Tom Flores. Uh, Darren Woodson, because Brian Erlocker mentioned him in his speech last year, and I thought I, I think that's always powerful, but it's different when a guy like Lynn Swan lobbies for his teammate John Stallworth, and a guy like Brian Erlocker comes out of nowhere was saying that that's who he wanted to be, and he didn't understand why he wasn't there. Tom Flores is interesting to me because uh, I think he's going to have momentum, but I look at coaches that have won two Super Bowls differently than I look at quarterbacks that have won two Super Bowls because I think it's very hard for a head coach to get lucky twice. Uh, I do think a quarterback with his support staff uh, can do it. I'm splitting hairs here, but those would be my two uh, sleepers in this class. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. And all of us will be watching January when the list of 15 finalists are announced. Thanks. You bet. Thanks, Thanks. That was Elliot Harrison the NFL Network. Up next, it's Great Cup champ and College Football Hall of Fame inductee Dave Dickinson. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, few people we know have had a better last month than our next guest. That's because Dave Dickinson, in the last month, coached the Calgary Stampeders to a CFL championship, which was their first great cup since 2014. Then a week later was enshrined in the College Football Hall of Fame for his quarterbacking career, and a stellar one, at the University of Montana, where he won the Walter Payton Award, the NCAA 1AA equivalent of the Heisman, and a national title in 1995. Dave spent 11 seasons playing with the Stampeders and British Columbia Lions, was the CFL's most valuable player in 2000, the Grey Cup MVP in 2006, one of three, incidentally, in his career, and who has already been enshrined in the CFL Hall of Fame. Now, in three seasons as head coach of the Stampeders, he's done pretty well. He's taken to the Grey Cup every year. And today, well, today he's here to take us through his last 30 days as well as life in the CFL. Dave Dickinson, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I love that intro. That doesn't get old hearing those type of things. <laughs> so, Dave, what was the greater honor, winning your first Grey Cup as a coach or gaining enshrinement in the College Football Hall of Fame? Uh, definitely uh, different. Um, I'm personally not sure there's a better honor or a higher honor for myself than that College Football Hall of Fame. I mean, especially from where I came from, Montana. Um, not even thinking it was possible, to be honest with you, with all these great players out there. No one were a small school and uh, and understanding the limitations uh, uh, that we had. And I'm, I'm pumped to win the Grey Cup as a coach. And it was fun, and it felt like really overdue uh, losing my first two years, and then getting back there and wondering if uh, I was going to be the like coach of the Buffalo Bills and just have a bunch of losses in the in the big game. But the the college football thing to me was so special, and it's just unbelievable. I'm still in awe. Uh, feel like it's not real. Now you 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 won the Grey Cup, of course, both as a player and a coach. Um, which was more fun, uh, playing for it or coaching to win it, and which was more challenging? Well, 
I do think I'm a believer. Uh, I always felt like the players win championships. I felt that more as a player. Now that I'm a coach, sometimes I think coaching has something to do with it. Um, but I do think you do have a little different feeling as a player. I think you have a more direct impact on the game. I think you obviously you're out there between the lines. You kind of lay it on the line. The coaching is fun, and you're just so proud of your guys. I think that's the thing about it. When you win it as a player, sometimes you can kind of internalize it a little bit. Um, see how you played, you executed your calls, those sort of things. As a coach, you're just so proud of your guys that they were able to take what you could give them, and they went out there and made you look good. So both are fun, but uh, ultimately, yeah, I'd always rather be out there playing, and then uh, uh, I'll take the coaching title as well, but playing is kind of the top of the list. Hey, Dave, we had Doug Flutie on the show once, I think it was a couple years ago, and, and he told us that he would love to go back to Canada and play his final season of football, no matter when that was. Obviously, he didn't do that, but he talked about how much fun it was playing in the CFL. What do you like most about the CFL game? Well, I'm good to, good to hear that from Doug, because we might be losing our quarterback, <laughs> um, Levi Mitchell, so I, I may have to go back. Uh-huh. Into the archives get to, and see, get, uh, get see in touch. Goes. Get in touch with our Ron Borges. He's got his phone number, right? <laughs> and he'll come and play too. <laughs> he'll come and play. You know, if you guys, anyone that knows Doug personally, I'm lucky that I was with him in San Diego. I mean, the guy is just a big kid, and he probably would come and play and play well. I mean, he's still in great shape, and now I think he's fifty. I don't know, fifty three, fifty four now. But anyway, he was the best. Uh, to me, it was creativity. That's what CFL is all about. If you watch a little bit, I think our game's been a little bit ahead of. College and in the NFL, as far as you have guys moving everywhere, the rules allow a lot of creativity. You can do lots of different things. Uh, you can have everyone moving at once. Obviously, you can have different types of formations that you don't see. We do have an extra player. It's an extra receiver for the most part, um, and it can be a, a real bit of a tweener. So the NFL is using a lot of guys that are, I don't know, kind of that Tariq Cohen mode now, guys that are running backs slash receivers. We've been doing that for years, um, guys that, that can do it all. And So I'd say the creativity more than anything else, and, and uh, also it's just a fast-moving game. The clock's only a 20-second time clock. There's no downtime. You get going and you get watching football and you get moving, and I think that's what the CFL makes it so fun. How about the, the size? It's a bigger field, and you've got an end zone that runs forever. Quarterbacks got to love that, right? An end zone that runs forever. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the goalposts are on the front, and uh, even when I played, I had more than a few touchdowns I felt were there, and I whacked that damn goalpost. But uh, you do have a 20-yard end zone. So to be honest, your whole your whole playbook is alive. I mean, yeah, you've got to tighten things up and, and, and work it out, but uh, even when you get in tight inside the five, you can still run more than enough football plays at that deep end zone. And Dave, after your MVP season in 2000, you returned stateside to try your hand at the NFL. You spent two seasons with San Diego, Seattle, Detroit, and Miami, but never threw an NFL pass before returning to the CFL in 2003. First off, how disappointing was it to never take a snap? And secondly, what did you learn during those two years about the NFL and about yourself? Yeah, probably my biggest regret, or I guess you go through life and I think all of us have been given a lot of opportunities, and I think if you can take advantage of them, that's how you're successful. I kind of feel like I never got that chance in the NFL. Obviously, I could have done more preseason or a practice to get that opportunity, but uh, you know, I felt like I had a chance to, to make it and to not even get one snap. was This definitely was tough. I mean, in 2003, honestly, I was just tired of not playing and not being part of the team. It's hard to feel like you're part of a team if you never actually play. And 
until to honestly I, I felt like it was time to get back to the CFL. But more than anything, I, I took in that knowing after you get cut a little bit, you do doubt yourself a little bit. You you start wondering whether you can make it and you're good enough. And I think one of the things I took was I, I needed to have that confidence myself. And I think it, it's kind of always bode well for me. I'm a, I'm a resilient guy, meaning that if it doesn't go my way, I'll find another way to get there. And that's basically what I took from that is, hey, this isn't in the cards. I wasn't... Um, Maybe it's not my time. Uh, let me figure out another way to have success in football and, and get the enjoyment out of, out of the game and, and make myself feel like uh, all this hard work is worth something. And that's basically what it came down to uh, in those years. They, they weren't easy. <laughs> we were on the road a lot, me and the wife, but uh, certainly still was a good experience. Did you, did you, those two years of watching, did that make you a better quarterback? You know, I what I did do is I was around some good people. Um, I still feel like Norv Turner helped me uh, as much as any of my coaches. And I, I had him at San Diego and I had him at Miami. And the reason was he gets just a little, little tiny tip, getting your feet to align with your drop, to align with your throws, um, just scheme system. Um, I felt like he coached me, uh, so I, I definitely. And then. Seeing the other guys. Now, I went to San Diego. Doug was the starter, Doug Flutie, and then Drew Brees was drafted, so that was going to be a tough lineup to crack. Uh, but we were kind of similar types of players, and to watch kind of how they did things. Um, to be honest, I never thought Drew would be at the echelon he's at. Because um, just like myself, I always felt like we were the underdogs, smaller. Did we have the same gifts as these other guys? But being around Drew, that's the most confident man I've ever been around. That's the man that he never wavers in his belief that he's going to get it done. And uh, certainly, yeah, you got to take some of that and put it into yourself. Hmm. Well, you retired, of course, after 13 uh, professional seasons because of concussions. And uh, first off, do you have any issues today as a result of that? And secondly, has the CFL been uh, as proactive as the NFL in sort of changing the rules in an effort to uh, protect the players and especially the quarterbacks? I think we're doing our best. Um, we have a lot of rules in place as well. I don't believe any set of rules is ever going to make our game 100% safe, nor do I want it to be that way because that's part of the, the to me, the, the great part of football is you're putting yourself out there and you know it as a player. You know you got to take advantage of this game and, and this snap because there's a potential for injury. Now, I don't want anyone to get to the point, like you said, where you're um, can't function in life later on. Um, I'm feeling pretty good. I hope I'm making sense to you guys. Um, <laughs> no signs today. So, no, no, no signs. But, but you know what? I worried about it. But guess what? I think when I was at the the Hall of Fame deal with the with the other guys, all of us we go back to play in a second, and we like, the game gave us so much. And it also, uh, you know, to me, I really felt like the trainers and the team had my back. And uh, a lot of it is a little bit of macho. And, yeah, I can I can overcome this and overcome that. But with the concussions, for me, um, there were certain times in my life having kids and all that where I was doubting whether I could take that hit. And that was time for me to step aside. So, you know what? I think we got some work to do, but I love the game. And, and you know, I my daughter's in soccer, and there's people getting concussions. It's, it's part of life. And you can drive a car and have a, a, a car accident. So I, I just think it's it's certainly something we need to look at. Yeah. Uh, I got my kid playing ball, and uh, I, I believe it's still the, the greatest sport out there. Hey, Dave, I, I'm looking at your 2003 resume here. You passed for 5,400 yards, 36 TDs, 
Only Doug Flutie, who you mentioned earlier, only Doug Flutie ever passed for more yards, more TDs in a single CFL season. But then you set CFL records in 2005 with your 74% completion rate and 118.8 passer rating. We've asked other quarterbacks who've been on the show before and, and quarterbacking coaches and gurus in the five years we've been on the air this question. What's the most important trait, at least in your opinion, that a quarterback needs to be successful? Yeah. I think it can be different. I, I know personally, 05, I, I think that was going to be my, my best year, and that's when I actually had my first of my major concussions. Uh, but uh, I've been around a lot of quarterbacks, too. I'm certainly not a guru, but by playing the position and understanding what it's all about, the first thing you got to have is vision. You have to have you prediction. You have to be able to see what's going on. I swear to God, I thought when I got into a game, it was easier than practice. I really did. I felt like somehow it cleared up, somehow it slowed up. And I could see things before it even happened. And I think with that vision, ultimately, you still got to deliver an accurate ball. And I don't think you can teach accuracy. I think you can at a lower level. But once you get a guy, and he's through college, and he has a delivery, and he has a motion, for you to go and think that you can change a guy into a 58% to a 65 is going to be very difficult. I think you have to have that vision to see where you're going to go with it. And then I think you're kind of born, or you've developed a certain technique that's going to make you an accurate thrower. And that's those are the guys that, are, that I want on my team. Dave, the Super Bowl has been around for 52 years, and people don't realize the Great Cups have around, been around double that, 106 years. You know, we all know and follow the NHL in the States. We all know how big the Stanley Cup is. Just how big an event is the Great Cup in Canada? It's big. I mean, uh, it's kind of that event, kind of like what I would say for you guys in the U.S., it's like uh, U.S. Thanksgiving. Like, So when I was growing up, U.S. Thanksgiving was a time when you got together with all your cousins, all your relatives. It was the big family event, and you just had fun, and you watched football. And that's what the Great Cup is. It's more everybody gets together um, and watches that game. I honestly think I've, I heard a stat. I'm like, uh, the people that watch the Great Cup, 80% of those people, that's the only game of the year they watch. And it's the, the ratings are way higher, obviously, than anything else. That's what they talk about. Um, we have a small league. We only have nine teams. I think a lot of fans get spoiled and just like, oh, we'll catch the playoffs. We'll catch the Great Cup type of deal. Um, but it's still really, for some reason, quite hard to win. <laughs> any championship goes that way. But, you know, we had a good event. We did not swim in any fountains like Ovechkin did with the Stanley Cup. I didn't, think, I didn't see any videos of our players. But there was definitely some drinks had out of that cup and certainly haven't been enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly still a big-time deal up here in Canada. Hey, Dave, thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations on both the Grey Cup and enshrinement in the College Football Hall of Fame. All right. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. You got it. Thanks, Dave. That was Grey Cup champ and College Hall of Fame inductee Dave Dickinson. Up next, it's our two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost out of time, so you know what that means. That's the two-minute warning. That's right, it's the two-minute drill with Ron asking this week's questions. Ronnie, take it away. Bills kicker Stephen Oshka has been blasted in the back and had his crotch grabbed without a penalty call. What do officials have against kickers in Buffalo? It's too cold to take their hands out of the pockets to throw those yellow flags. They don't serve them chicken wings. (laughs) 
What's your personal penalty preference? Block in the back or grabbed in the crotch? Any penalty that doesn't involve the hands. Depends on who's doing the grabbing, Ron. (laughs) You raise a good point. Is the Legion of Boom back or were they just visiting for a long weekend in Seattle? It's back. The Boom is in the philosophy, not the players. And Bobby Wagner is an excellent bridge between the two. Uh uh, Legion of Boom is gone. Legion of Kaboom is here, as in Kaboom. The Seahawks are in the playoffs again. <laughs> Speaking of which, Russell Wilson had a quarterback rating of 37.9, Clark's favorite guy. He threw for only 72 yards. If they beat the Vikings, what does that say about Minnesota? Well, Wilson also beat the Cowboys at fewer than 100 yards passing last season, so the less he throws, it means the better the Seahawks play. <laughs> well, I say, I guess that maybe they should fire their offense coordinator. Yeah, they did. Kirk Cousins was 26-30-1 as a starter before he got to Minnesota, and he's 32-36-2 today. So how does that Viking $84 million investment look now? Just a tad better than the 10-year, $100 million investment the Patriots made in Drew Bledsoe and then dumped him after oh, one season. Take it easy. No, knocking a friend of the show. How dare you? <laughs> right. Hey, Ryan, it's about as good as that Edsel I show you. Charles sold you in the 80s. <laughs> Best Hail Mary defender, Rob Gronkowski, Devon McCourty, or Pope Francis? If you have Gronk back there, the defense needs more than a Hail Mary. You need the whole rosary. <laughs> Nate Wright. <laughs> Very good. Hail to the Redskins. Hail to the Chief. Or hail, hail, Michigan. Hail to the Redskins, of course. Hail of a season for Dartmouth College. <laughs> uh, did the Rangers fire, uh, Raiders fire the wrong guy when they dumped GM Reggie McKenzie? When you hire John Cruden as your offense whiz and your offense ranks 21st, they need some accountability for the rich. That's the end of the yeah, I'm with you. No, they didn't. They just hired the wrong guy when they brought in John Gruden. That's the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. Coming up in the second half of our show, we have Hall of Famer Ed Hockley, Borges of Bogus, and our number one NFL city. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've lost a couple former defensive stars the past week. That would be linebacker Isaiah Robertson, who started with the Rams and was killed at the age of 69 in an accident in Dallas. And former defensive end Tim Rosevich, who passed away at the age of 72 uh, with a cause not revealed. And, and, guys, I remember both of these players, you know, Isaiah Robertson, because he, he was a good football player, six-time Pro Bowl and two-time first-team All-Pro. And Tim Rosevich, because, well, because... It was an eccentric personality. It's a great Sports Illustrated story that talked about him. It revealed uh, <laughs> what his big passions were when he did pranks. And it was like eating glass, set himself on fire for Halloween parties, jumping off rooftops, driving motorcycles, motorcycles, motorcycles off piers, and motorcycles too. Um, Ron, which of those have you tried? Well, you guys have known me well. I don't have much of a taste for glass, but I have certainly set myself on fire a number of times. You would <laughs> yeah, you distinguished have. that a couple of times. I did once try to jump a pond in a Jeep, which didn't work out as well as I expected, that but the counts. takeoff was great. 
<laughs> That's good. No jumping off of rooftops, though, right? <laughs> no rooftops. N- not, not yet. <laughs> hey, yeah, Goose, you're, you're our historian. How do you remember these two guys? Well, I remember Robertson as a complete linebacker. He went to six Pro Bowls, intercepted 25 passes, collected 25 sacks. You know, he made plays on both sides of the line of scrimmage. I remember Rosovich for his nickname, Mad Dog. He had that afro going, and he was wild both on and off the field. (laughs) Yeah, especially off. But, you know, Goose, you live in that Dallas area. The sad thing about Robertson was he had given a speech earlier that evening at a football banquet at Prairie View High School, I guess, and apparently was killed when the limo he was driving skidded off a rain-soaked road. You know, as productive as he was on the field, uh, he was even more more productive off the field in his life after football. He established the House of Isaiah in this yeah, area, a right. drug and alcohol rehab center in Milbank, Texas. It's helped hundreds over the years. And he realized early on that there was more to life than football. And, and Ron, Rosovich was a good player, too, at, at USC. But, but the truth is, he was more famous for his pranks and actually spent 20 years after playing in the NFL as a Hollywood actor and as a stuntman. Yeah, at USC, he was a roommate of Tom Selleck. And so uh, later, he was, he was on several uh, Magnum P.I. shows. He had a long career mm-hmm. on TV shows and the movies. And But I remember him for an NFL film, something called The New Breed, in which John Fassender said that Tim yeah. Rosovich was the first football hero of the Aquarius generation. That's good enough for me. Yeah, well, Isaiah Robertson and Tim Rosovich were good enough for a lot of people and gone way too soon. Seems like we're saying that a lot more and more these days. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about our NFL City of the Year. Where's that? Better stay tuned. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, if you didn't, that I'd mention it. Uh, last week, GQ Magazine named its 2018 City of the Year. And the winner was... Philadelphia? Yeah, Philadelphia, it was. Because, as the magazine said, it's a model city with a Super Bowl-winning team and a new radical political class. And I'm not really sure what that has to do with being the city of the year, but anyway, they mentioned it. So, Philadelphia. Ron, where would Philadelphia have finished in your 2018 city of the year? Uh, Well... Uh, if you've ever been to Pittsburgh, it isn't even the city of the year in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I'll take Hershey over that, too, as a matter of fact. It's pretty far back. There. It's probably in the uh, uh, lower 20th percentile of my <laughs> NFL Hall of Fame cities, I would have to say. We, we just lost our Philadelphia Philly. I mean no disrespect when I say <laughs> thank that. As thank you very Arkansas. much. Thank you very much. Well, what would you have chosen? Uh, what I have chosen is my city. San yeah. Francisco every year. Yeah, okay. There is no other city. What are you kidding? Yeah, well, I agree with you on that. Hey, Rick, same question. Are you a Philly fanatic when it comes to the 2018 city of the year? No, I, you can vote uh, Washington, D.C. every year. That's my that's my favorite town. Wow. Really? Wow. Government. Wow. Day. Why? Back back when the Redskins played at RFK, back when everyone was in the city. Okay. Wow. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll call you from San Francisco in Washington, okay? Don't be wrong. Exactly. I'll be out in San Francisco. Um, so, um, you know, I, I'm... I'm sure we we've all have stories about covering NFL games there, and that's why I said Philadelphia. You gotta be kidding me! But I'll be honest with you, I didn't know much about that city until I went there in November 1997. It was a Monday night game at the Vet when I was covering the 49ers, so we flew east, um, spent Saturday night there or Sunday night uh, there as well, and and then Monday it's the game. And I've never hadn't been to the Vet since I guess '83 or '84 when I was in Baltimore. Um, and San Francisco was winning like 24, 20, 12 late. They they were way ahead, uh, had the ball, and the game's over basically. 
and suddenly out of nowhere, people start firing up these bottle rockets and Roman candles. I was like, what? Um, and I walked down to the sidelines with two minutes to go. You remember those days, guys, when you oh, could yeah. walk down to the sidelines you know, and stand on the sidelines? And fireworks were exploding in and around the 49ers bench. True story. I mean it. So Steve Mirucci says, everyone out here, anyone who's not playing into the locker room, I said, you, you mean me? He goes, get the heck out of here. So it was then, guys, <laughs> I realized that these fans were unlike anything or anyone I'd seen before. Um, they had a holding cell at the vet. You guys probably know that. And I think something like a dozen or more people were detained afterwards. Like, God, what almighty. Ron, they don't have that in San Francisco. That's why we, that's our city of the year. They don't have that. And I'll tell you what, Philadelphia, I guarantee you, Philadelphia would not, would not have been GQ city of the year in 1997. I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> no, you got that right. They, they, they're not exactly. I don't think there's any holding cells any place in San Francisco, let, let alone at the stadium. Are you kidding <laughs> Goose, you got a favorite story about Philly? Yeah, I, I remember driving to the vet early on a Saturday morning back in the 1990s to see then-Eagles coach Rich Kotite. Oh, yeah. There also was a Temple game that day at the vet. You parked underneath the stadium, and I remember walking to the elevator. It was kind of dark, and I thought I saw a cat walking along the wall. <laughs> I was wrong. It was a rat. I couldn't get to the elevator oh, fast enough. <laughs> Say, wait, speaking of which, since you mentioned that, Bron, before I ask you, did you see Ann Killian's text last week? No. <laughs> she was at Oakland, and she said she was going to the Coke machine, didn't, and they, suddenly they were repairing the machine, and somebody said, hey, by the way, don't use the Coke machine. There are two dead mice in here. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're moving to Vegas, baby. That's why they're moving to Vegas. You got a story from Philly, Ron? Well, yeah, the, no surprise. The, the one I remember, the body bag game in that stadium, November oh, yeah. 12th, 1990, yeah. Eagles, Redskins, Monday night. That's when uh, uh, Buddy Ryan was quoted as saying that the offense, would, they'd have to be carted off in body bags. And as you will recall, recall, that was indeed the case. Nine Redskins knocked out of the game, including both their quarterbacks. And the yeah. next day, Buddy Ryan said, Imagine the coincidence. <laughs> I said yeah. that, and well, lo and behold, those guys happened to get hurt. Brian Mitchell ended up quarterback in that game. Yes, he did. Remember yes, that? he did. Friend of the show, Brian Mitchell. Friend exactly of the right. show. Hey, so guys, let's say we start our own Hall of Fame of NFL Cities, okay? Which would get your NFL City of the Year for 2018? Ron? For 2018? Well, i got to take Boston. Look, I mean, it's for the, uh, they got everything. They got the Super Bowl champions. They got the World Series champions. They got the Edison Conference NBA finalists, and they got the Bruins who skate on. I mean, come plus on. they got you, and, and they, they got, got me. You. I mean, what else you? is there? How about Goose? What else is there, Goose? You said NFL City, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you got to realize the Celtics played the NFL. Boston, Boston, NFL. Arrowhead is the closest NFL has NFL has to a college environment. It's all red like Nebraska. And with a city strong history of barbecue, the tailgating is beyond outstanding. It's the best in the league. Okay, I'm going to be like Ron and sort of broaden my horizons here. I'm going to take New York because it's the only place you can see four teams as bad as the Giants, the Jets, Nets, and Knicks play all at once and still, still not hear anyone boo Santa. Plus, speaking of barbecue, Goose Man, it has Jackson Hole burgers. And there's nothing like the bacon cheeseburger platter. Trust me. Or, or Goose. Or the Burger Hut at the Parker Meridian Hotel. And you don't have to trust me on that one. Take Goose's word, because Goose and I went there one evening, and he hasn't been the same since. <laughs> I bet behind the curtain there. Yeah, behind the curtain. It's unreal. It's like the old days at a canteen. It's unreal. I like it behind the curtain. All that said, Clark, I still go Green Bay. And I've told football fans building bucket lists. There are two places you need to go to. 
Green Bay for a day game, and Kansas City for a night game. Lambeau and Arrowhead. Green Bay ranks up there with KC as far as the tailgating goes, and the Packers have the most knowledgeable fans in football. These people have been sitting in those same seats for several decades. They know and appreciate good football, whether it's by the Packers or the opposition, unlike Boston. Well, there's the signal for NFL Sharpshooter of the Year. Yeah, Sharpshooter of 2018. That's our own Ron Borges. Here with another of his... Borges or bogus epistles, epistles, Ron, epistles. epistles. So Ron, who or what is the lucky target today? It's not Mrs. Maisel, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it is not because you don't know who she is. I have no clue who she is. But I am among those who think that the NFL has gone too far on softening up the game to avoid concussions or, or, or the playing of defense. But even I have my limits. And those limits were hit Sunday, the moment Stanford, allegedly, I should say, Stanford-educated Henry Anderson, a New York Jet 301-pound defensive lineman, slammed into the back of Buffalo kicker Stephen Ahauska after a blocked field goal try at the end of the first half. Predictably, the kicker hit the ground with a sound similar to the sound of throwing a 100-pound bag of seed in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> Boom. Anderson may have liked it, but to me, that block wasn't bodacious. It was bogus. <laughs> Harshka laid on the field as his teammates trotted off to the locker room. Didn't show much concern for the kicker, I might add. As the medical team worked on his back and his hip, neither of which loosened up much, and he missed another kick in the second half and is now day-to-day. That's what happens when you hit not only from, get hit not only from the blind side but from behind by a guy who's twice as big as you are and is wearing twice as much padding. I like to put the hits back into football, but not hits like that. And Bill's coach, Sean McDermott, feels the same way. A day later, he said there's no place in football for it. He's like a quarterback. You know, he gets hit in the back. Any player that gets hit in the back should be a foul. And then he's a kicker. I don't know. That sounded kind of not very nice. And then he's a kicker. But while I agree with McDermott on this, comparing a kicker to a quarterback in terms of the need to protect them, sounds a little bogus to me. But... <laughs> I want to take the slide out. I want to take the international throwaway out from the quarterback. Let them get killed. But kickers, on the other hand, it's bogus when you even talk about them as football players. So don't hit them. Please. You know, and it was only a couple weeks ago the Patriots' Cordero Patterson got caught grabbing the same kicker in the crotch at the end of a play. No call. Now, that was really bogus. At least it was funny, although not to Steven Hauska. Hey, Ron, I I watched that play. It was looked to me a pretty blatant cheap shot it was away from the play kicker wasn't going to be involved this is really a bigger problem than a kicker getting hurt isn't it yeah no you're right i mean it was a cheap shot uh remember that they hit a number of years ago that i believe it was warren Sapp put on a guy from green bay put him up for the yeah side. offensive yeah. lineman yeah yeah. yeah i mean it was a hit like that it wasn't quite as ferocious because he didn't have as long a long a, a, a run at the guy although it certainly looked like he would have taken it if he did have and the guy had no i mean he was looking the other way the kicker had no i mean he had no idea the guy you know what he looked like he looked like a kicker He's like what the hell am i doing out here now these guys are playing football and then boom and it was he was down it was terrible ron quick question steven hauschka or mrs mazel <laughs> well if he hit mrs mazel like that mr vinegar ben mazel would be right up there kicking somebody in the in the garage like uh patterson <laughs> We're not going to be kicking anybody in the garage, but we are going to get running. We're going to run to commercial. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there's some league news that came across my desk the other day that I'd like to talk about. Except, guys, there's a catch with this one. It's not exactly NFL news. In fact, it's not NFL news at all. Um... The first thing that I want to talk about is this report that's actually from a league that's over a year from playing, and that's the XFL. 
think you've heard of it. Love yeah, it. it's back. Yeah, ready for football in the spring of 2020 or a year later in the Alliance of American Football. But nevertheless, it's back, and it's back with a catch. It plans to do something revolutionary. Well, although we're on, you know, that's nothing new with the XFL. Um, right. But it's going to do something revolutionary, and that's this. It plans to play with a running clock, much like soccer. So you throw an incompletion, run out of bounds, say, I think presumably maybe suffer an injury, and it doesn't matter. I mean, the clock's going to keep ticking, except, well, except for the last two minutes of the half. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out it's going to make games go faster. But, Goose, the question I have is, will it make those games more attractive to fans? Well, I knew when I played high school hockey, we played some games with a running clock, and I hated it. He always felt you were running out of time no matter what the score or what point of the game. But I'll say this. It'll place a greater premium on maximizing your possessions. You'll be able to get through a game in two hours instead of three and a half takes the NFL. And I'm sure TV will have that two-hour window. What I'm wondering, uh, uh, Clark, is will they have injury time like in soccer? Which yeah, no, that I, that's all, yeah. I like it. That yeah, that's more interesting because you don't know if you're out of time, on time, late for time, or doing time. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great. Well, uh, Goose hates the running time when he was playing. He hated the running time when he was playing. But we got running time here, Ron. You like it or hate it? I love running time. Running time is good, especially if you have yeah. a lead. Running time or Mrs. Maisel? <laughs> Mrs. Maisel, she wins them all. Hey, I almost forgot to mention, um, they're also going to have designated spotters to place the ball down as quickly as possible. So he's got these guys scrambling to place the balls down as quickly as possible. Hey, Ron, th- that sounds like a job for you or maybe even Mrs. Maisel. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there'll be guys lining up to get laser surgery to you know qualify so they can get in the game without getting in the game. Sort of like what well, we've been doing for forty-five years. We get in the game, <laughs> yeah, but we're not really right. in the game. <laughs> that's right. Oh, and uh, Goose, one last thing. <laughs> there are other new rules on their agenda, such as a revised kickoff where the kicking team can't run downfield until the returner's caught the ball, a punt rule that's like the CFL's pump rule. I'm sure Dave Dickinson probably likes this one. And that's where the returner gets at least five yards of space to catch the ball. And lastly, a tiered extra point that eliminates kicking altogether. No kickers. No kickers altogether. Ron likes that. No kickers altogether. And scores one point for scoring from the two, two points for scoring from the five, and three points for scoring from the ten. A lot of changes here, Goose. Any of them make sense to you? Well, I like eliminating the extra point kick. That would return an actual football play to the game. I also kind of like that five-yard bubble for pump returners. That, that'll reduce the injury yeah. risk for both those hitting and those absorbing those hits. And I'm, I think you'll see fewer block punts because coverage teams need to make sure they have enough tacklers to corral the returner once he catches it. If you give, give a guy like Tyreek Hill space, he's gone. Yeah, well, I don't disagree. But, but Ron, it, to me, it, it, it sounds a little bit... Reminiscent of the Van Allen scoring system that Jimmy Van Allen tried to implement for tennis in the 60s. I lived in Newport then. We were at the Newport Casino. You'd see Jimmy Van Allen there. He came up with this Van Allen scoring system, the vast scoring system. And, you know, it was it was wild. I mean, it was revolutionary. It, It would speed up the game. And you know what? It never caught on. Well... I hate to say it, but I know about as much about Jimmy Van uh, Allen as I know about Mrs. Maisel, but that's all right. You know, uh, I do know about Mark Van Egan and Van Allen, but uh, Jimmy Van Allen's out of my league. Uh, is he related to Marcus Allen? I wonder. Uh, you know, no, I like, definitely look, not. No, no. I know this much. I like the kick return rules. Uh, you know, they should also outlaw the rule against blocks in the back, however, so the kickers are not getting killed uh, and getting FaceTime on TV. But uh, anything that gives the kick returners a chance to actually return the kick, I think is great for football. 
Yeah, no, all right, I agree with you. Um, okay, well, another piece of news, football news. I mentioned there were a couple there. Um, and this, again, is not associated with the NFL per se, but it is related to the Hall, the Hall of Fame. That's because Hall of Famer Darrell Owens and former running back Ricky Williams, yeah, my guy, are among 50 former players to start yet another league. So let's see, that's three startups in a year, and good <laughs> luck, guys. Um, anyway, uh, they're behind another league that's called the Freedom Football League. And Goose, first question. Why? Because T.O. has been looking for a league to play in, and he couldn't find one unless he actually started one. <laughs> to start this, is a guy, this is a guy with a gold jacket who's already washed out of the CFL and arena football, but still wants to play. So maybe this could be like a seniors league, like the seniors PGA Tour. Right. And how about Ricky Williams? When he was in the best league, yeah. he didn't want to play. Now he wants to start his own league. That's what right. Are they doing this guy? Yeah. I want to go off to Thailand someplace and smoke some weed. That's Remember that when he left the Dolphins? Just left? Yeah. Like Three days before training camp. That's it. Goodbye. Um, listen, I, I'll be honest with you guys. I wouldn't have paid attention to this, except uh, there's a Connecticut entry, and I live in Connecticut. And that Connecticut entry is called the Connecticut Underground. Why, Ron? I have no idea, but maybe, just maybe, that's where you can find their fans. Well, I, I know exactly why, because that's where the league's going to end up pretty quickly. Underground. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you don't know it or didn't know it, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas around here. And with three weeks left in the season, and less than two to Christmas, and and with Ron heading off to Germany, what, this week, Ron? You going off to Germany? Yes. With Ron going off to Germany for what, boxing? I'll be there for boxing, and I'll go to the little little Christmas fairs that they have in the middle of all those German towns. It's great. Are you going to bring home some chocolate for Gusame? I might bring home some chocolate, and maybe I can find a German bobblehead. There you go. That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, with all of that happening, uh, I don't want anyone to get caught short. So, guys, this is where you get to play Secret Santa for some of the most deserving people in and around the NFL. Not the XFL or the Freedom League or the Alliance, but the National Football League. And let's get started making our list. And Ron, checking it twice. So I'm going to start with the subject of last week's interview with Hall of Famer Bruce Matthews. And that would be his brother, Clay Matthews. Goose, what are you getting him this Christmas? I would give Clay a spot in the Hall of Fame finals. His, he deserves his, uh, this discussion and debate of his candidacy, and I hope Santa gives him that chance. Okay, Ron, my next card says, you're to give a gift to... Uh-oh, this one's close to home. Miami's favorite coach, Ron. That'd be Bill Belichick. <laughs> I would give him the gift of someone who could play pass defense better than a Rob Gronkowski. <laughs> <laughs> that could be any of the three of us, right? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Mrs. Maisel would have played defense no worse than him, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Gooseman, another one that's close to home. And it's another of our recent guests. That would be Darren Woodson, former safety of the Dallas Cowboys. You're Dallas Cowboys, Goose. I'd give him an extended contract with ESPN so he can stay visible in the time it takes him to get to the Hall of Fame finals. There are a lot of safeties ahead of him right now in the queue. Ed Reed, Steve Atwater, Leroy Butler, for starters. Woodson deserves his candidacy to be discussed, but he may need some names to clear out ahead of him before he gets that chance. Yeah, I agree with you. You think it happens, Goose, eventually? 
I would hope so. Well, he should have been an okay. all-decade pick okay. in the 1990s. So look, he, he's he's Hall of Fame worthy. Okay. Uh, here we got next. Oh, Ronnie. This yes, one's sir. in your wheelhouse. This one's in your wheelhouse because you're going to present this guy to Hall of Fame voters again. That would be cornerback Ty Law. What are you giving him as his secret Santa? Well, uh, I hope I'm going to give him a gold jacket uh, that is overdue. It's not yet long overdue, but if he doesn't get in this year, it will be time to say that and then cry like Daryl Owens at a pity party. <laughs> If he doesn't get in this year, Ron, we're going to have Mrs. Maisel present, okay? <laughs> you should. You'd have a good chance. <laughs> hey, Goose, uh, your shopping list is getting longer. you got a lot to do here because I'm looking at this next guy on your list. It's Dak Prescott, yet another friend of the show. What do you give him, Goose? I'd give Dak a wristband, wristband that reminds him to hand or throw the ball to Ezekiel Elliott as much as possible every game. <laughs> the Cowboys are 17-4 and when Elliott rushed for 100 yards or more. In 18 and 4, when he touches the ball 25 times in a game, when Elliott is rolling, Prescott can be an effective quarterback. Where do you find that wristband, Goose? Where do you get one like that? Jerry's making one as we speak. <laughs> All right, because Jerry always, Ron, don't you forget it, always listens to the Goose Man. Sure? Oh, wait, oh, another softball for you, Ron, right I here. Like it. Former Raiders GM Reggie McKenzie. Yep. He's next. You bleed silver and black. We know that. So this one should be easy. What are you giving Reggie? Oh, let us rest in peace for Reggie McKenzie. Uh, after which I will say this. A shot at a general, being general manager with a team not run by someone who trades away the two most talented players on that team, Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper, and then gets the GM fired claiming, I got no talent. <laughs> <laughs> huh? What? <laughs> well, speaking of that, let's stay in the Bay Area, Goose. What are you giving John Gruden, the man who says, I got no talent? What are you giving him? A smart pill. Take a smart <laughs> pill, and you won't be trading away your best defensive player and your best offensive player, especially when you're a defensive player, because the game revolves around the guys throwing the ball and the guys chasing the guys throwing the ball. Kelly O'Mac, one of the best pass rushers in the game today. There's no guarantee he finds another Mac, no matter how many draft picks he has. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, let's see what we got here. Oh, Ron, we're talking big picture. Just yes. for you. What do you give the guy who has everything, including heartburn? And that would be Roger Goodell. Ooh, that's, let me think for a minute. Now I know just what he needs. An excuse. You know, it seems to need a new excuse for either his league, the owners, or the antics of his players. So I'm going to give him a nice bag of excuses. He could use one. Uh, and let's not forget the commissioner of the Dallas Cowboys, Gooseman, Jerry Jones. What are you getting him? A Lombardi trophy. If he can win one time without the thumbprints of Jimmy Johnson all over that trophy, he can take a step back, turn the football operation over to son Stephen, and enjoy the fruits of that gold jacket he's wearing. Uh, Ronnie, last one here. I promise yes, we got to run here. What are you giving the people of Mexico City? You thought they had the Rams-Chiefs game, but instead got mud in their stocking. I'm giving them an instant replay of the first game they ever had there, the Petroleros versus the Vaqueros, Cowboys versus Oilers, 1994. <laughs> ole, ole, ole. Thank you, guys. Shay tells me all he wants for Christmas is a time out here, so you know what? We're going to give him what he wants. Now, you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our next guest needs no introduction. He's former referee Ed Hockley, who earlier this year retired as the NFL's longest tenured referee. He's been working since 1990. Whew. It might have been the most recognizable face with the most recognizable arms in that fraternity. But while Ed has left the game, you can still find him in the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame, with the hall last week revealing a bobblehead where it's not just Ed's head that moves, but his arm, too. And that includes some of Ed's most famous on-the-field calls. Ed, congratulations, and thanks for joining us. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. The The bobblehead's kind of a cute deal. I, You know what? Um, they approached me, uh, and there's a huge charity aspect to it. I, I don't get a penny from the bobbleheads. I, everything uh, goes to any proceeds that I would otherwise get. I'll go to a couple of designated charities, and uh, and so it's kind of a fun deal. Well, I want to ask you about that, but first question first. Do you have your own bobblehead? And if you don't, when does one appear at the Hockey League doorstep? <laughs> you know, actually, I don't have one yet, though, but I understand that uh, that one is on its way. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. My, my wife is just so anxious. She, you know, she's, we don't have enough football stuff around, so we want to get some more. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. Um, Ed, I, I want to go back to what you said earlier, and, and I know you generally don't do interviews, but you're doing them in support of this honor primarily because – all the proceeds, as you've mentioned, from the sale of the Ed Hockley bobbleheads go to two of your favorite charities, and that would be Autism Speaks and the Tyler James Riveron Foundation. You want to tell us about it? Oh, I appreciate that opportunity. Thank you. And I'll say up front and I'll say at the end that you can get the bobblehead at bobbleheadhall.com. So that's it's all one word, B-O-B-B-L-E-H-E-A-D-H-A-L-L.com, because that's, as you mentioned, the Bobblehead Hall of Fame, so bobbleheadhall.com. But the um, the the two charities that that – that the money goes to, and I want to specify, it's not all proceeds from the from the bobbleheads, but it's it's a major percentage that otherwise would have come to me that I've designated. So every I don't get a penny. Everything, a major percentage of the sale of a bobblehead goes to uh, the two charities, Autism Speaks. Autism, you know, I think a lot of people have heard about it, don't know what it is, but it affects uh, one in fifty nine people these days, and uh, it's a it's a um, the bioneurological disorder that impacts a person's communication skills, their social interactions, and cognitive function. You know, a real quick story on that. Um, I have a granddaughter who who suffers from uh, uh, Asperger's, which is on the autism spectrum. In other words, it's one of the autism uh, disorders. And uh, we were walking. We were doing a five-mile fun K, and um, and we were the whole family. And I got a whole a huge family with kids and and cousins and you know nephews and all that and we all had t-shirts on uh uh adventures in asperger's and a, a gentleman came up to us in his mid-50s and he said i signed up for your team and, and we were a little surprised because he wasn't part of the family but great we even gave him a t-shirt and we came to learn that he had just been diagnosed with asperger's a year ago and he said my whole life i haven't known what was wrong with me and i couldn't fit in with people and so what i would do i lived my whole life by pretending to be somebody else i would pretend to be whoever 
whoever I was with. And that's the way I survived and got along. And he said, it's amazing to have suddenly been diagnosed and realized why I have these issues in, in public and social issues. And so I can get treatment for it, but I can be myself for the first time in my life. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, the other the other charity to which the money goes to is the TJR Foundation, as you said. And this is for uh, addictions that young people, uh, children and uh, and young adults suffer from. It's becoming a huge problem in our society. By the time kids reach eighth grade, 28% of students in eighth grade have consumed alcohol and 16 or 16% have smoked marijuana. Um, the, the estimates are that 50% of high school students have abused some type of drug. And it's becoming a growing more pro- growing uh, problem, uh, more accidental over- overdoses uh, with our children and youngsters. And that's what this money goes to, a foundation that helps get those uh, youngsters counseling. So, again, thanks for the opportunity to, to plug that. And as you said, I, I haven't done any interviews or endorsements or anything since I retired, but uh, this was uh, too good an opportunity to pass up. So, again, it's bobbleheadhall.com. And uh, if you uh, want to have something that you can, I don't know, throw rocks at or whatever, that would be the Ed Hockey Bobblehead. There we go. Ed, I understand the Autism Speaks connection. How did you get involved with the TJR Foundation? That is a foundation that was started by a very dear friend of mine whose son overdosed. And and, uh, this was a a very, you know, upstanding family, and they had him in rehab on two different occasions for very extended periods of time, for several months. And he would be doing great, and, you know, everything would be going good. And then then something would happen, and, you know, it caused uh, depression, and he would relapse. And, uh, And ultimately, like I said, when he was still a, a very young man, um, he overdosed and passed away, and and we started the foundation uh, in his honor. And that money, like I said, is now going to to help kids that are in that same situation. And yeah, both worthy causes. So, Ed, you retired in March. What have you been doing since then? And how difficult is to watch games and keep quiet when you see bad calls? <laughs> I don't see bad calls. What are you talking about? <laughs> you I don't watch Monday night. <laughs> you know, I know how. Okay. Um, what have I been doing? I, I retired both from my law practice and from and from the NFL uh, as soon as the season ended. Um, believe it or not, my wife and I sold our house. Uh, we bought a big 45-foot beautiful motorhome, and we are traveling the country. And uh, it is the coolest thing in the world, and we're going to do it for I don't know how many years. And There's a lot of this beautiful country to see, and we are really having a wonderful time. I, I, I've gotten dragged back into the NFL to a little ex- extent, though. Um, I am a, a, officially a consultant for the league uh, with regard to rules issues. I'm very much involved in in, uh, in rewriting and new rules that come out. And also uh, with regard to the four new head referees that we've got this year, um, we had uh, I retired, of course, and Jeff Triplett retired, and that was planned. And then we had a couple of other last-minute retirements, Gene Steratore, uh, who went to, um, you know, I forget the networks there, but he went to <laughs> Gene Steratore and Terry McCauley both retired as well. So we all of a sudden had four openings for head referees. And so I've been working very closely with those four. Uh, that's one of them has got a similar last name to mine, uh, Sean Hockley. 
um, and uh, and Sean Smith, Alex Kemp, and Clay Martin. Uh, all have been in the league for a while, but this is their first year as head referees, so that's been keeping me busier than I want to be. Well, Ed, I just want to tell you that uh, while you were uh, talking to us, I just bought my Ed Hockley bobblehead uh, <laughs> on the Internet, right. and they said they're shipping that baby out to me, so I should have it in a couple of days. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you very much. Sure, uh, you're welcome. Good for you. Good <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question, you know. Um, which coach, uh, in the words of the great Ben Dreyf, uh, did the best job of giving you the business down there, you know, on the, on the, on the sidelines over the years? Oh, my gosh. You know, the coaches, I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to single anybody out, but I will tell you that I love the relationship that I had with most of the coaches. It was it's a very frustrating job uh, for them. And and I always viewed my role with coaches is I'm going to give them the information that they want and I'm going to let them vent. Sometimes they just need to vent. And, and they know I'm, it's not going to change anything, but they just got to get it off their chest. And so I'd go over, and, and uh, I, I, I will never forget I, one very, very well-known known coach who's now retired. He, he uh, said to me before a game one time, he said, Ed, I really want to apologize. I, I know that I lose my temper out there, and, and I just go off. And it's like I, I, I don't know where, what I'm doing. <laughs> and I feel so bad about it. And I laughed and I said, don't worry about it. Well, sure enough, you know, partway through the game, he just did just that. I went over the sideline and he just lit me up. And I stood there and I listened for about 15, 20 seconds. So he took a breath and I said, is this one of those times you were talking about before the game, Coach? <laughs> and, uh, he broke down and started laughing finally, and uh, and that was the end of the scene. But, yeah, they I just viewed my – and I think most of us very seldom see a coach get flagged. We just try to keep them out of trouble. We don't want to do that. We want to answer their questions, and if, if it gets too much, you just move on or you ignore it and move on. But uh, that's just part of the job of officiating. As you mentioned, of course, one of those new referees uh, that you are trying to help out, uh, you have a close relationship with. Uh, did you give him any particular advice uh, when he became a referee? And did you give him any advice when he first said he wanted to be official, as in don't do it? <laughs> you know, he never asked me about becoming an official. Um, he he uh, he was putting on a seminar, an open week of mine, in, when I was in the NFL. It was a week. And he was putting on a seminar for some clients. He's got an investment firm that he owns. And and he said, would you come over and for the seminar? I'd like you to hear what I do. And I said, great. So I flew over to live in California. And we drive into this high school. And I, I figure, well, it's going on in the high school you know, auditorium or whatever. And he pulls out an officiating jersey and puts it on. And I didn't even know he'd started officiating. And early in his career, he never told anybody what his last name was. It was just, you know, I'm Sean. He, he didn't want to do it on his name. He wanted to, you know, get good and do it on his own. Um, but uh, I'm extremely proud of him. He was a Pac-12 referee, and so he, uh, he learned how to do it before he got in the NFL. But the NFL seldom makes anybody a head referee right off the bat. You, you know, got to learn the ropes and learn the people and all the ins and outs and the unwritten rules and things like that. And, and uh, this year, it was his turn to take over. And I tell you what, I just stand back and I watch and I'm embarrassed. I, that I, I wish that he would have made me a better referee because he sure is a great one. Hey, Ed, we've had Mike Pereira on here many times before, and one of the things we've asked him is full-time officiating. You like it or you loathe it? And he goes, no, I don't want to see full-time officiating. How about you? Well, I officiated for 28 years in the NFL, and I challenge anybody to say I wasn't full-time for 28 years. 
um, the definition of full time. Uh, are the players part time players because they only uh, play nineteen twenty games a year? Um, you know, I don't know what it is. Your what? What do you want to call full time? I did every. I worked every game. I did everything in the NFL. The NFL never called me up and said, "Hey, we want to put you on a Thursday night game. Can you get off your other job?" You know, it's just this is the Thursday night game. Um, I spent probably 50-plus hours a week on officiating. Um, you, I watch 20 to 25 hours of video every week. Um, there's rules tests every week. There's so much study that goes into it. I get videos. You get videos every week. This is an hour of nothing but holding calls, you know, with a voiceover. We want holding calls. We don't want holding calls, etc. Roughing the pass or intentional ground. It's, it is a full-time job. So I just always kind of chuckle at the whole discussion about full-time officiating. Okay. Hey, Ed, uh, one quick question also. We've got about 30 seconds here. One rule change you could make, what would it be? Oh, God, I, I, I don't really have an answer for you on that one. I, um, I think that the competition committee has done a great job of continuing to promote player safety. And I love the, the player safety rules that have, been, that have been made, and I think that will continue in the future. Okay. Ed, thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with those bobblehead sales. In fact, you just got one more sale with Ron Borges. Just got one more. All right. Remember, bobbleheadhall.com. That'll there do it. it. Is. Thank you very much, Bobbleheadhall.com. Thanks, Ed. That was former what? NFL referee Ed Hockley. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Shay, uh, Ed Hockley's still here, so could you ask him to blow this whistle? That's the two-minute warning. Hey, thanks, Ed. Great seeing you again. That's the signal for the two-minute drill. And, Ron, take no prisoners. Let's go. Here we go. Boston Globe Collins, Dan Shaughnessy called the Patriots 34-33 loss, uh, last second loss to Miami on Sunday. The worst non-playoff loss in Boston sports history. What's your number one non-playoff loss choice? Dartmouth's 14-9 defeat to Princeton this year. How about those losses to the 4-9 Jaguars and 5-8 and Lions this season? Ooh. Your choice, Mark Sanchez, Josh Johnson, or Colin Kaepernick? Easy, Sanchez, always willing to be the butt of jokes. <laughs> Are we talking about NFL snaps or political activism? Ooh, ouch. What the hell is wrong with the Steelers? Easy. The steel curtain turned into the shower curtain. <laughs> Nothing that a little more steel in the curtain couldn't cure. Right now, Joe Green can't even watch. <laughs> Josh Allen became the first quarterback since Tobin Road, friend of the show, in 1953 to rush for over 90 <laughs> yards in three straight games. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. He's a quarterback, not a running back. And Buffalo lost, Baron, by the way, two of those three games. With that offensive line, it's a good thing. It's not about the yards. It's about survival. <laughs> the Bengals have lost five straight. Is this the year Marvin Lewis loses his job? Yes, sir, but that's what happens when Hugh Jackson covers your back. <laughs> Marvin will walk in the year. I think that was a plan from the start. Giants linebacker Alice Ogletree eats Twizzlers before every game and will not substitute any other licorice. What's your pregame superstition? Worshipping at the altar of Tom Brady. A cup of coffee, a clicker, and the red zone. <laughs> Is 49ers tight end George Kittle the best tight end in football that nobody knows? Better ask Ma and Pa Kittle. <laughs> After his 200-yard receiving game last weekend, I think everybody knows who George Kittle is. 
Dallas is five and one since the arrival of Amari Cooper, and the Bears are nine and four since they got Khalil Mack. Should Don Gruden get GM of the Year award for his work with other teams? Ron, I guess you didn't read last week's judgments. I had that covered. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't have fired the guy who drafted those two players. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Dave Dickinson, Ed Hockley, and Ed, Elliot Harrison for joining us, Shay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any of our podcasts, just go to our website. That would be themaven.net slash talkoffame, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be too.